You are listening to the BU Podcast with Michael Arrington. We discuss social justice, childhood trauma, current events, hip-hop, and so much more. Now, here's your host, Michael Arrington. Yes, yes, here we are. Episode 2, the BU Podcast. Michael Arrington, I'm here, man. I want to talk to you about um, therapy in the black and brown uh, communities, man. I know a lot of us old school folks kind of tend to lean towards uh, saying these kids are too sensitive today, right? But I would beg to differ. You know, what I see is um, these kids have so much access, what I like to call, they have access to excess, right? They got so much information coming at them at the speed of light, but no real context to this information. So I couldn't imagine being in the 90s, having social media and having, you know, everything being recorded. Um, Things went viral in in our day. Um, It was kind of on the spot. If you wasn't there, you wasn't there. You know, and so today these kids are questioned about everything and everything is recorded. Everything they do, they record. Um, they have real no real context to this information that they get at the speed of light. They have mouse click away from having anything that they want, man. So I always say if I had Google when I was in high school, man, I probably would have went to Harvard. Right. Um, so how they process information is much different than we did because of the speed in, in which they have to get information. And so um, I would kind of beg to differ on the side of, you know, they're not more sensitive than us. They just are more in tune with feeling things that we had to tuck away or we had to ignore. Right. And so in our communities, the black and browns community, we kind of look down upon uh, people who show weakness or sensitivity. Right. And so that is that kind of leads into why a lot of us don't go get therapy and don't kind of break those generational traumas that need to be broken. Um, hopefully throughout the course of my, my, my travels and my podcast and my music um, and the more you guys kind of get to know who I am, you'll kind of see that not only am I a therapist, but you know, I'm somebody who recovered from therapy and um, I was able to heal through the therapy process um, with some of the things that I went through as a child and some of the things I went through as an adult. Um, you know, really, it's kind of more to me. It's about information and information being power. So with that said, welcome to today's show. I got a great guest. Her name is Brittany Williams. I can't wait to get into this conversation, man. Can't wait to you guys get to experience who she is and the things she knows in this conversation that we have. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. You are listening to The BU Podcast with Michael Arrington. All right, man. So we're back. BU Podcast. I'm with the amazing, intelligent, bright uh, Brittany Williams. You know, she's a, a jack of all trades, master of all. It just really depends on what day you ask. Um, she's got her own private practice, uh, licensed clinical social worker, correct? Yes. Um, so I'll get into that and let you, you know, speak about that in a minute. But, um, so just tell the people really quick who you are, what you do, and then we'll kind of dive in. Oh, I feel like that's such a loaded question. Where do I start? I mean, that's why I I would say, um, (laughs) I always say before before all that, I, I, I'm an MC, right? So I right. um, haven't put music out in a while, but it's definitely the core of 
who I am just as a, a lover of hip hop culture raised raised kind of by you know the legends in the underground LA scene and um I kind of lead in the mental health field with that right so when I teach I definitely uh feel like it's a very similar as I'm seeing moving a crowd and coming with content and delivery um, so I'm a hip hop lover of hip hop culture, uh, an MC first before anything. Um, professionally, though, I would say that I'm a, um, I'm a clinical social worker, but I'm a psychotherapist. So LCSWs could do a lot, but I um, do therapy and I lead a group practice in San Diego and, and we provide individual couples and families and groups. Um, I'm also a mom of three, all seven years apart. So <laughs> I stay very, very busy. Um, and yeah, I feel like that's, that's kind of encapsulating, you know, all right. yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a lot. But, um, so let me ask you this, um, what, or how did you fall in love with hip hop? And then when was it? So I fell in love with hip hop. I don't know how old I was, but it was when Lighter Shaded Brown came out with uh, Latin Activity or Latin Active, and it was when Teardrop, but uh, dropped that verse, and oh it was the first time that I saw. I, I it was the first time I saw someone who looked like me rap, and someone who came from a similar like culture has me. Right. And so um, I was all I, I grew up on 90s hip hop. My brother's four years older than me. So I was super blessed um, in that sense. So I had always liked it. But when Teardrop, you know, dropped that verse, I was like, yo, this is, you know, like, you know, when you fall in love with something and you just get that like feeling in your body, like that tingling in your chest. Like, that's how I felt. I think I might have been, I don't know, like maybe eight years old. Right, um, right. But that was it. Yeah, I think I felt that way when I heard the message. Mm, and yeah. so when I heard him say broken glass everywhere, that was that was it. That was that I got that tingly feeling. Like yeah. that was like, okay, this is the this is the wave right here. So I feel like that's um, one of the most important songs of hip hop culture in general. Definitely, definitely. Um, so you talked about the LA scene earlier. So yeah. Um, we're a little difference in age group. So what was the LA scene like when you kind of first ventured out into doing this hip hop thing? Yeah, so I was introduced to underground hip hop in 10th grade by my homie Carlos. And he gave me this CD and it was like, you know, we burned CDs back in the day. It was like this right. mix of like Blackalicious, Visionaries, Living Legends, Dead Prez, Hyro, um... Who else? Sage Francis, Aesop Rocky, uh, like just so many um, different artists. And the LA scene, it was so I, I grew up in I grew up in Roland Heights. So I was in the middle of I was in I was at the at the very edge of Orange County, San Bernardino County. But then I'm technically in LA, LA County, County, right? So. Hip hop shows, a lot of them were in San Bernardino and, and especially downtown Pomona. Right. Now, there was a lot in, in L.A. as well, but it was just closer to drive to Pomona and San Bernardino than all the way right. in L.A. in high school. But um, the L.A. scene, the L.A. underground hip hop scene, to me, one of the things that really blew my mind as a young person is that uh, 
it was the first time I was introduced to hip hop culture. So right. the first hip hop show I ever went to was uh, the night hip hop stole Christmas in San Bernardino. I don't know what year it was, but I was a teenager right. and I went to that show and I was expecting it to be like a concert, like, you know, what, what we think of when we think of a traditional concert. And it wasn't that it was like, Everybody had their time to shine. The turntablists, the MCs, the break dancers, the graffiti artists were out there, like, you know, selling their merch and, and like doing live art. Right. And I'm like, wow, like this is amazing. And then the artists, I remember like the visionaries performed and then Tumex came into the crowd and stood like right next to us, like vibing to the next person performing. Right. So it was a very different setting and it also it also taught me as a young person like in the LA underground hip hop scene it didn't matter what you look like or where you came from what mattered was you know are you good at what you do right wow. how like have you mastered the craft can you show up wow. and deliver and that blew my mind so i was Grew up on like industry hip hop, exposed to LA underground hip hop, and that was the first time I understood what the elements of hip hop culture was. And then also hearing artists talk about, like I think of a Me of Mexican descent, right? Like right. it really taught me a lot about myself, and that's what made me kind of fall fall in love, but also find my identity, find my sense of of belonging. Um, and that was like, yeah, that was like in tenth grade. Right. I think I had a similar experience for me. Um, like, so I'm, I'm almost the same age as hip hop. So mm -hmm. I kind of grew with it. Right. So it went from the Grandmaster Flash, Furious Five to Run DMC and then into like BDP and Rakim and, and Big Daddy Kane and Coogee Rap and all those. And then it went into this Afrocentric era. Right. It went to like X-Clan and Poor Righteous Teachers and Brand Nubian. And I was right when I hit high school. Yeah. So when you talk about learning your identity, that's kind of where I got some of my first taste of what Afrocentricity was. And um, I think it was vital in those times for those type of voices. Right. You know, and so when I look at these kids today and I talk to high school kids today, they idolize people like Mac Miller and, and those type of people, whatever, because he spoke to them. Right. Yeah. And so I think it's very, very important that for as much as, you know, there's flash and cash and all this other stuff that we have those artists who kind of just speak from a voice that is more relevant, not necessarily that it's got to be positive, but it should be at least some level of positivity so people can see themselves in it. You know what I mean? For sure. So, yeah. So all of that being an MC and you obviously went and got educated. Right. And so what led you into social work or therapy? Yeah, a hip hop led me into social work and therapy. So I didn't really know what I was doing in like applying to grad school. But what I did know is that all these studio sessions that I'm in, and when I say studio sessions, they were like in someone's garage, right? Or someone's room. Uh, all these like recording sessions and and whatnot I was in I was in, I knew that there was real healing and alignment happening right in front of me. And I was like, dude, this has got to be further explored. And I don't know anything about therapy, but this definitely feels therapeutic. And, and like, 
hear, seeing people recorded, even myself recording, you're doing take after take after take. And I remember after just leaving, feeling so like, like, um, almost like a cathartic release, right? Like it's like a purging of whatever you've wrapped. And so I, I, I was at USC at the time. Um, and I was, I got my, my bachelor's in sociology. And after I was like, yo, I got, I got to, I got to study and research this. So I applied to, uh, an MSW program and I started researching. I was determined to figure out the connection between mental health and hip hop, and uh, that's when I got into UH Manoa. My, you know, James was in the Navy, so we got stationed in Hawaii, um, and that's when I found Dr. Tyson's work, who was the pioneer person who pioneered this thing called hip hop therapy and actual scientific research. Um, and then that's when I linked, linked up with JC, and we've been cool ever since. Right. I I was uh I met Dr. Tyson kind of on happenstance at a, on a panel and um, he was talking this hip hop and education stuff and I was there as an MC. So wow. it was kind of like, and I hadn't, I hadn't dipped into the mental health field yet, but I was still working in the juvenile hall. So I had a sense of how important that, that, that aesthetic was. So um, I was definitely a fan of his work or whatever. It was definitely like a blessing to kind of meet you and JC and you guys are kind of carrying on that lineage to a certain extent. So uh, respect for that. So let me ask you this. Being a woman of color mm-hmm. as a therapist, what are the advantages, disadvantages, and hardships? Um, it, so it's so interesting you say this because I grew up with nothing but brothers. Right. And so I, d- definitely a woman of color, but I also grew up, like, my, my brothers were all football players. So I, you know, grew up playing football and basketball and knowing sports. I would say... Um, you know, the advantages are is that social work is a female dominated field, right? And so you you probably come into the field with um you know, that, you know, in your pocket regardless. And I think that, you know, if you're a male in the field, you're probably going to, people are going to be more careful on what cases they put you on. Unfortunately, right. um, that may be the case. Um I also feel like an advantage that I have, um, and I credit this to the women that I that raised me, is that I feel like the and you know I don't know if this is more so a gender thing versus how I was raised, but the women in my family raised me with the balance of um, you know being being a Chicana Mexican American right like we're of service but we also have a voice. Right. And so that's one of the things that I feel like really benefited me in the field. I think that the disadvantage of that has been coming into the work. It's like you're supposed to be uh, you're supposed to be in this work to help and to be of service and you can't have no boundaries. Right. Like uh, the need is a need. And, um, you know, you you can't speak up. We we say that, right? We say that you should speak up and you should set boundaries, but you know that's very very hard if you're raised um, to if you're raised and you're seeing people around you not actually practice that, right? Um, and right, so right. I would say though overall, like 
you know, I think about, you know, who I work with now, both, you know, I would say my, the, my caseload is split 50, 50 male, female. I think that the common thing that brings connection between me and my clients though, is our lived experience. And a lot of that is music. And a lot of that is sports. And a lot of that is style and how we dress and all those different things that we don't think about. Um, and I think that that's really helped me build connection uh, and do good work with my my clients, just to know that there's a mutual understanding uh, yeah. between between you and you and the people that you service. I think is key. Right. You tapped into something that I was going to ask you later, but I'll divvy div- div- to it now because it just makes more sense. But um, you talked about the the lack of the shortage of male therapists in the field. One, why do you think that is? And two, um, what can we do to change that? Hmm. Why do I think there's a shortage? I mean, I think, I, I think first of all, like there's this big stigma still, right? Like that, you know, talking about emotions and mental health and vulnerability is like weak, especially, you know, culture to culture, it varies. I think that's one big barrier that we still face, right. uh, you know, So I think there's that. Um, But I also, here's the other thing. I also don't think that people know. I don't think that people know that you can be a therapist with a master's degree and a clinical license. Right. So I think that, you know, I think that there's a lack of of knowledge there, a lack of representation. Um, I I don't know. I, I, I oftentimes wonder that a lot. Like, why is that? If we think about the, the the history and the roots of, you know, especially social work, it's very much, you know, white women dominated. Right. And so I think when we look at who runs agencies and who's in leadership, we typically see that across the board. Right. And so um, I think in order to change that, we have to we have to see kind of what the systems are looking like. And, um, you know, I know in my experience, it was like, okay, a lot of these systems are system centered. I know that I see that I'm struggling in that. What am I going to do about it? And a big piece of it, you know, I had to take ownership and be like, okay, I'm either going to stay in here and survive it or I'm going to start my own shit. And then that's when I made the move. All right. Yeah, that's dope. I think that the, for me being in the field, I know that I'm like, I'm one of four or one of two or I'm the unicorn in the district because there's right. not too many people like me so there's spaces and in, in pockets that I can move that's vital but then it's weird not with the clients but it's weird with the people around it that or in the mechanism that are like oh you're the therapist kind of thing right and so right. I hear that a lot of parents I deal with a lot of teenagers so a lot of parents finally meet me and they're like oh you're Mr. Arrington, like we didn't know, right? And so some of them, especially for the from the African American male standpoint, they are the parents are ecstatic, like, oh, okay, cool, right? But then I have to watch the fine line between providing service and being a mentor, right? Yeah. Because they don't necessarily have any male or any positive male role model. So I have to become that too. So it's a tight rope that needs to be walked on. Um, But yeah, I think a lot of it is because the field has always been either white male dominated or white female dominated. Most of the agencies are run by these people. So that's, you know, representation of what they 
what they hire. Right. And that's, you know, that's still the, that's still the reality today, even though we, you know, we say we've come very far, like you look at who's really in charge and who's, you know, you know, uh, hiring and, and, you know, running shit. It's, it's, it's definitely, it still looks like that. Right. And that's the, that's kind of the, the, the reason why I went back to school too. So right. um, I can be in spaces and places that people might my, my look like me, not like you got to think in my cohort, there's only two black males. So yeah. that says a lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so Absolutely. let me ask you this, um, a quick versus question. Um, what's better doing what you love for money or having a job that pays well? Uh, hands down, doing what you love. Right. I would doing what you love. Hands down. And if you're lucky enough to make a lot of money doing what you love, that's the win. <laughs> that is the Absolutely. truth. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, let me ask you this. When you were 12, what did you see yourself doing? Hmm. When I was, it's crazy. When I was 12, I wanted to be a veterinarian because I loved animals. <laughs> and um yeah like i i don't i i don't know whatever happened to that dream but it's me and my husband always laugh about it like our childhood dreams like you know we're not those things but like some of our closest friends are so right. like one of my closest friends is a veterinarian so i don't know maybe it's the energy around me but yeah i loved animals um Again, I think that there's something there, very therapeutic that animals bring, especially like we had we had a dog. Um, we had two dogs and and, you know, animals can sense right energy right. With us. And it's sure. a pretty amazing thing. Right. I know for me, I wanted to be an attorney. Mm. And I got all the way to college and realized that um, I didn't know if I can. In good faith defend somebody i know was criminal mm. you know like if i know they did it i couldn't in good faith be like i'm gonna do what i can to defend you at the way you should be defended right and i just didn't know i knew i didn't have that in me to do that and da's don't make enough so <laughs> <laughs> so it was one of my reasons right so here we go another curveball at you um therapists versus life coaches Gosh, that's so hard. Um, because I, I like I think about like like life coaches are badass, man. Right. Therapists are too, but there are some really, really whack ass therapists as well. Right. I think if you're looking at treating um, a mental health condition, if you are feeling stuck and it's connected to something that feels debilitating, hands down therapy. Right. Um I know from even my own personal experience with people that I know that do the life coach thing, they run into the licensing issue. Yeah. Right. And all the stuff that it takes to become licensed. Right. And so um, a lot of them just kind of tap out and say, Hey, I can do this without having a license. And, but it's work still. Like it's not, you know, it's not magic. It's more business entrepreneurialism than it is necessarily. I would say therapy, not that therapy is not a part of it, but 
um, because of the mechanisms in place, at least for the state of California. I can't speak for the other states. The state of California's their system is is, is insane. I'm going through it now. I had to wait six months for them to tell me that my application wasn't right or something wasn't getting didn't get some records from my other school. And I'm like, bro, you could have called and told so me that. Complicated. <laughs> so complicated. Here, here's the thing. I feel like I, here's my biggest thing because I I got into it with with some folks before. I feel like you need to be accountable to whoever your your people are, right? right. So like I have an issue with cuz you have life coaches, you have curanderos, right? Spiritual right. healers, church counselors, all these different um, you know, wellness professionals that are doing good work, but then you have some that call themselves wellness coaches and they're throwing out like mental health advice, professional advice on social media and hurting people. Right. And like, I have an issue with that because I have people coming to me thinking that they're incredibly damaged, like they're, there's no hope for them. Right. So I just think that whatever you do in, in wellness work, like you need to be accountable to your own, your own people. I'm accountable to, uh, to a group of therapists that I run decisions by, has a leader, has a therapist, right. just because I, I work. I mean, I'm dealing with people's lives. I don't, I take that really serious. Right. Uh, you know, my employees and my, and the people that I service in therapy. So I just think you got to be accountable. The purpose of having our board is for that. Right. Um, yeah. You know, you, it's good to have a, a governing body that at the end of the day kind of holds the boundaries together. You know what I mean? I think in life coaching and wellness coaching, you can get a little blurred and skewed. Right. Because there's no governing body per se holding. Mm -hmm. Right. And so they do have like these life coaches that like these certificates or whatever. Right. But it's not necessarily a peer reviewed governing body right. that people, of you know, that that ensure you. Right. Like right. I know even in grad school, I had to sign up with, you know, AAMFT so I can have a license or whatever, so I can do my internship. Right. Yeah. And so I was held to a certain standard, which I think is important. Yeah. And I, I think it's important for people to know, like, you know, that means that if your therapist is whack and they're doing some unethical stuff, you could report them like you. Right. You know what I mean? Uh, I don't think our I don't think our boards are perfect, but I just think that the key ingredient is just being accountable to people that that have, you know, that will be honest with you and that have the best interests of, of the people as well. Right, right. All right, let me ask you this. Questions about um, this generation's view of trauma versus the old school methods of coping. How do you feel about that? Uh, give me more info. What do you mean by that? So old school people would say this generation's kids are more sensitive than we were. Um, everything is mental health and it's not, it's just these kids are sensitive. They just don't, they're just scared and lazy, right. Versus that old fire and brimstone, you know, tough love that, you know, some, some generations got. Um, I mean, I think that in understanding, you know, the body, uh, trauma is very much real and is stored in all of us and lives in the body starts in the body. And so I think that the old school perspective of everyone is soft is, uh, in my opinion, I think a survival tactic and skill of just like, 
uh, the old school mentality of like, keep your head down, keep pushing and work. Right. And, um, but, you know, to be critical of, of that, I think, because I've seen it in my parents and in my own family, it's like, well, where does that emotion go? You know, like that, right. that comes out, it comes out in aggression. Uh, I know you being a, being of a, a Mexican culture, uh, all your theos become counselors when you're at a carnesada and they're, they're drinking, right? It's right. like it comes out one way or another, and it's up to us as to what uh, how it comes out. So mm. you know, we hurt we hurt the people that's closest to us. Sometimes right. emotion comes out in uh, in our marriages, in our family, in our cha- uh, our parenting dynamic, and so. I think that today's generation, and I'm not going to lie, like, has a parent myself that was raised by parents that were old school. I'm not perfect as a parent, man. Like, I struggle with... Struggle. I had a struggle today, right? <laughs> I have to, like, kind of double back and be like, okay, if this child came into my office, how would I treat this? Yes. Right? And so, because I came from that rigid fire and brimstone tough love my my parents neither one of my parents were very affectionate right yeah. and so um how i see it how i juxtapose it that generation versus this generation is that our generation i'll speak for myself you know i was born in the 70s mid 70s so i'm right in the middle so i was literally an 80s baby and a 70s baby at the same time right, right? so but there was a certain things that were just the way it was because it way the way it was. Right. And there was limits to information to the contrary. So yeah. you had like, like today, these kids got information coming at them at the speed of light. Right. Yeah. And so, but there's no context to it. So they take it all in. And they don't know how to deal with it. Oh, no worries. They take it all in and don't know how to deal with it. Right. Because they just don't know. Right. And so with us, information was slow. It was snail. It was at a snail space, yeah. right? So like somebody bullied me at school, nobody would know about it unless they were there, right? Somebody mm-hmm. bullies you at school now, it goes viral in minutes, right? There's right. a fight on campus. Everybody knows about it now. My day fight on campus, you might hear about it tomorrow. You know yeah. what I'm saying? And it would the story would be way more embellished because nobody was really there, right? And so- yeah. How do you take all that emotion in with no context is where these kids live, right? Mm -hmm. And so, like you said, where does the emotion go, right? So you get a young girl, like the kids I'm dealing with now, get a young girl that was fifth grade two years ago when we were on campus. Now she's seventh grade and she's physically developed in ways that she doesn't understand. Now she went from being this bratty little funny looking girl to this young woman who's now being objectified by the males on her campus because she's blossomed over the course of an 18, two year time span. How does she deal with that? Right. In our day, it's like, you know, toughen up buttercup. Right. And so today, no, they feel some kind of way. And the beauty of these kids today is that they're not afraid to stand on what they believe, whether it's right or wrong. They're not afraid to stand on it anyway. And I respect that. Yeah, that's real. Yeah, definitely. I think that, um, you know, in doing my own, in my own therapy, like I recognize that I very much grew up with the just push through it mentality. Like Mm -hmm. just, just get it done. I still hear my parents say like in my head as an adult, like when I'm struggling, just get it done. The benefit of that is I know how to struggle. 
Like I know how to sit with those emotions, but the benefit of going to therapy is, 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 and reprocessing trauma and whatnot is that it doesn't always have to feel that way. Right. Mm. Like it can be like, okay, yeah, that was a struggle, but like, or this person said that about me or this person did that to me. Cool. But when you process your trauma, that doesn't feel debilitating. It doesn't define you that because that's what the work is, is in therapy. Right. Mm -hmm. I wish I would have known that as a kid. I wish I would have, uh, I wish I would have received that kind of support in yeah. high school or, uh, cause that would have definitely shaped and shifted some of uh, my relationships after that and the decisions that I made. Right. Right. Definitely. Definitely. So that's a perfect segue to my next question. So, um, being in an interracial marriage yeah. and having a blended family, mm-hmm. what is that? How does that feel one for you just personally? And then how does that kind of help you as a family, you know, doing family psychotherapy? Right. What is it one for us personally? Um, I think it's constant growth. Um, it's interesting. So James is the middle child and was raised with sisters I'm the middle child was raised with brothers. And so talk about like, you know, uh, coming into marriage with balance, but also heart like difficulties with some things and how we communicate, like, you know, the way that I show love, you know, is, you know, I roast people and I, you know, we joke. And, and so that's been nice because that's how he was raised too. But I, I do think that there are some like, certainly some cultural things where um we've had to learn from one one another and like check one another on it you know and and figure out what our flow and rhythm is has a family um and so i would say for us it's constant growth um i've been super lucky and fortunate um in regards to having a blended family um james James grew up not not knowing who his dad, uh, not having a relationship with his his biological dad. And so when he came into my life, he made it a point to establish a good relationship with Zoe's dad. Um, And so he met Zoe's dad before he met her just out of respect, kind of, you know, establish that rapport. And and I mean, they have such a good relationship. has both fathers to her and they kind of respect each other's role in her life and, and whatnot. And so that's been, that's dope. It's so dope. It's so dope. Um, and I'm really grateful for that, but it took, it took us, you know, uh, it took us a while and a season to find that balance, right? Like we moved to Hawaii for a couple of years then we came back. Right. And so, um, it's been definitely challenging, but um, I love my husband's family. His, his, you know, my family loves him. But there's definitely been some some rocky, um, some rocky patches along our. We're going to be married for ten years, uh, where we really had to like grow together. But I will say this. Thinking about how we've made it this far is uh, one of the big things that has helped us has a has a married couple, but also like, you know, uh, an interracial couple is we look to the elders in our family, the elderly married couples. And we're fortunate, fortunate enough to have have them. So if there's any issues, you know, 
we go we go to those select few couples and we seek their guidance and their wisdom and their prayers right. and whatnot. And that's been really helpful with parenting, with uh, financial, you know, stuff like, you know, building generational wealth, uh, all that stuff. We really owe it to, you know, to the older couples for showing us that path. Yeah, that's dope. I know I'm in an interracial couple as well. Uh, my wife's family's from Uruguay, which is South America. And um, there's some cultural issues there, some some social cues, some some um, cultural cues we may miss, right? right? How she may respond to something or how I may respond to something, right? There's always right. that tone of voice that comes yeah. from, you know, Black males that are like, yo, you know, it, it's taken as more aggression than it is actual excitement. So right. we had to have those conversations too. We've been married, you know, we've been married 10 years going, this is the 11th year. And, um, you know, it hasn't always been easy, especially when you throw two kids in the mix, right? And we got kids back to back. And, you know, my kids are 20 months apart. And, you know, we got married older, right? So, you know, I'm now 47 and my oldest son is nine, right? So, which is weird for like, because I got godsons who are 24. That can be <laughs> my son's father, you know? So, um, but it's been great. And the growth has always been there. Um, my strengths are her weaknesses. Her strengths are my weaknesses. We are definitely yin and yang. Um, we come from literally opposite sides of the tracks, right? Um, but she's first generation everything, right? But so am I, even though my family's from here. I'm the first generation college graduate, first generation master's degree, so on and so forth. So there's a lot of in common there. And it just, it works. Um and but it's also it's also an ever learning, mm-hmm. you know, experience. So I definitely can I can agree with that. Yeah. All right. So if you can meet with anybody, five people, dead or alive, have dinner with them, who would it be? Who would be sitting at that table? Sheesh. Five people. Um, five people sitting at a dinner table with you. Who would it be? Dead or alive? I definitely would say. Uh, I'd really want to sit down with Lauren Hill, um, have a conversation with her. She might be um, late, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's okay. I'll wait for her. <laughs> I'll wait the whole day for her. Um, yeah, I would say El Boogie. Um, I would love to sit down with Gloria Anzaldúa. Okay. Um, she's like probably the first sociologist that she wrote. When she, I read Borderlands when I was at Melsac. And I was like, oh, this is my, this is my, you know, experience. Right. Well, um, so Gloria Anzaldúa, hmm. I would say my grandma, because I really miss my grandma. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then, hmm. Damn, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. I would sit down. I would love to sit down with Angela Davis. Okay. Had a chance to meet her. Amazing. Yeah, I was, I'm going back and forth between her and Asada Shakur. Uh, But I would sit down. I would love to sit down with Angela Davis. Did a concert for Asada Shakur. You what? Did a concert for her in Cuba. 
Wow. You've met everyone, Mike. Like insane. It was insane. And yeah, I've been pretty lucky um, to meet a, a few people in passing, man. It's, it's been it's been crazy. But um, but yeah, though, I appreciate the time, man. Um, I'm so super proud of your growth and seeing you go. I remember when we first met, you were kind of at that point of making that transition to being this entrepreneur and um it seems like it's thriving i'm no i'm sure it's not as smooth as you make it look but um yeah. there's always growing pains when you start something new but it looks like it's prospering and um shouts out to you appreciate all that you do for people i appreciate for all that you've done for me since i've met you put me on some of those panels and talking to some of your students it's been gratifying so i appreciate it man i appreciate you being a guest on my new podcast and um you know i wish you nothing but success and in your career, whatever you do, you know what I'm saying? And you know, I got your back. So let me know if you need anything. I appreciate you, Mike. And I'm definitely grateful that you've mentored me and especially with music pushing me to, I always have you in the back of my head, just release that shit. That's all I hear. You don't want to have the freshest (laughs) stuff in your hard drive. Let that go. Let it go. (laughs) So I appreciate, I appreciate you. And I'm going to be sending you some music soon. Definitely. I, I can't wait to hear it. All right. All right so we'll speak soon, man. I appreciate it. Good luck in, in everything you do. Let me know if you need something. All right. Sounds good. All right. Peace. Peace. You are listening to The BU Podcast with Michael Arrington. Yeah. We're back, man. I want to thank uh, my guest, Brittany Williams, for coming through. Um, had a real deep, uh, dope conversation, man. She's such a dope person. Um, check her out at uh, B Williams LCSW on uh, Instagram, Brittany Williams on Facebook. Um, you can get with her everything she got going on through Instagram. Um, <clears throat> it's really dope to see um, people of color in, in the therapy realm. Um, it's really, really dope to have somebody like her with some really good insight and then have a hip-hop influence as well. That's extra dope. Um, but uh, before I get out of here, man, I want to hit you with this last segment um, about normalizing some of our rigorous childhoods. You know what I'm saying? I know for a long time, man, I used to kind of give my parents praise for some of the things that I had to really endure, more or less went through. I had to endure um and I used to kind of, you know, you know, give praise to that level of parental non-guidance, really, because they really weren't around. Um, you know what I'm saying? If you grew up like I grew up in the 80s, I was a latchkey kid. And for you youngsters, what that is, is that nobody was home by the time I left for school and by the time I went to bed. You know what I'm saying? So I did have an older brother who was kind of in and out of trouble at the time. So he wasn't around a lot. Um, But this was, you know, this was the crack 80s. This was the gangbang era 80s. This was the night stalker, hillside slinger 80s. And, you know, a young boy, first grade, second grade, third grade, was at home by himself having to fend for himself. Um, I never really had uh, parent conferences. I can't recall one time when my parents helped me with homework. Um, I can't recall like them ever really giving me like super duper praise. Right. And so, um, but we normalize those things like that's, that's okay. You know, it's it's tough love and all that type of stuff, man. But we are not in the era of that anymore. 
Um, and I used to be like, oh, well, you know, my parents made me who I am or that level of parental guidance made me who I am. But no, I made me who I was. I am. I made myself who I am. You know what I'm saying? I had to endure a lot. I had to struggle a lot, you know, but it was me putting in that work. It was me going to school every day because I knew it was the right thing to do. Um, so we got to stop normalizing some of that old, you know, rigorous fire and brimstone, you know, getting beat with skillets and, and, and spatulas and frying pans and extension cords. That's just not cool. Um, so, yeah, I said what I said. That's our show today. And uh, we're going to get into some good things, man. Um, I appreciate y'all tuning in. We're growing, getting bigger, we're getting better. BU Podcast, Mike Harrington, easy. You are listening to the BU Podcast with Michael Arrington. 